0: She just oozes with that Christmas cheer, doesn't she? <laughs> Christmas Eve! Woo! I call her the sound effect lady. She's always making sound effects in her meetings. Oh, that's great. Um, I'm Greg Boyd. I'm one of the teaching pastors around here who doesn't like to wear shoes. So, so I'm barefoot. And all the people in the front row said amen. They love that. Um, hey, this uh, uh, thing that was going on with the Salvation Army, it's, it's, uh, if you can help out with the chairs, that would really be beautiful on today and then on Thursday. Uh, we're honored to be able to open up this place and turn it into a toy, toy shop uh, for family that are uh, in poverty, lower income, and it's uh, a beautiful thing. Uh, thousands and thousands and thousands of families come here, uh, and uh, the kids get to walk through, their parents walk through for them, and they pick out their allotted certain toys and stuff, so they get to have a kind of a Christmas thing. And uh, just to see the look of, on the kids' faces, it's, it's just endearing. We're right on a bus line so that folks who can't, don't have no transportation can take the bus here. And you just see the people flocking here and it's just beautiful. So it's a wonderful ministry and that you can be part of it. Also, I want to give a little praise report and a thank you. Uh, we are in this, uh, making space campaign. We initially were, we thought we were shooting high and going for $45,000, uh, to finish up the North End and to, uh, refurbish the, the theater. Um we met that goal really early on and so we had such momentum we thought, Well let's see if we can maybe raise money to get this digital camera and so we up to another thirty and as of this last week we've gone beyond that. And so I want to say a big thank, thank you for all you guys. That's fantastic. I just love and, and we also had a, a poteritioner who lives very far away, can't possibly benefit from what we do on this location, but they donated ten thousand dollars to this. So thank you, potterishioners, we love you. That's uh hey, yeah, yeah, it's good. I just love the way uh, we're a people who are learning to to live in self-sacrificial love and find joy in giving. So that campaign is still going on. Um, you know, Don't feel like you can't give anymore. Uh, it will all go towards further uh, uh, things at the theater. Uh, still a lot of work that needs to be done there and, and I need more money for the camera. But uh, thank you so much for just your faithfulness and stepping up and going far and over and above uh, the call here. So we're in this Advent season, and for the first time in Woodland Hills history, we're paying attention to the Advent season. We're not terribly liturgical around here, uh, but it's good sometimes to pay attention to the church tradition. And so in the church calendar, this is the time of this four weeks where you prepare for the coming of Christ on Christmas, and each week has a separate theme. And so last week we talked about hope, and this morning we're going to be talking about joy, entering into the joy of the Lord. And uh, the centrality of joy in this whole uh, gospel story. Uh, I want to start by having us look at this little video. It's a wonderful little video. Uh, Someone brought to my attention this last week. Uh, done by some folks in, in Britain, and I just love it. So just check this out. It's called No Pressure. Pregnant? Pregnant. Pregnant. It's what you think. Whose is it? It's God. stupid? Do you think I am? You've got to believe me. Just leave me alone. Have you told him yet? No, he's too angry. How do you know he's angry? Look at his face. Maybe he always looks like that. Uh... Go on, tell him now. Look, don't rush me. This is only going to happen once, ever. I need to prepare. You've had thousands of years to get ready for this. Can't you just wing it? (gasps) Look, this poor guy thinks his girlfriend's too, Tony. She's not, though. I was going to tell him that. That's not the really big news, is it? I mean, the really big news is... Joseph. Or can I call you Joe? Uh, yeah. Look, we are... Angels. Well, I am. He's in training. Hey, Mary is telling the truth. She really is the Virgin Mary. <clears throat> Mary is pregnant, but the baby was conceived by the Holy Spirit. How does that happen then? Advanced level. Basic. It's going to be a boy. Ha. Oh, you. It's going to be a boy, and his name's going to be yeah. Yeah. No, his name's going to be Jesus, because he's going to be the Saviour. What's going to happen? It's all quite simple. He's going to be born in a stable in Bethlehem, so you better hire a donkey. And the shepherds and angels will come worship him, and there'll be wise men, and presents, and a star, and camels, and donkeys, and a baby lamb! And he's the son of God? Well, yes. And that. So, so what do I do now? I think someone needs to say a very big, I'm sorry. Yeah. These might help. Remember, God's son. No pressure. Why is he coming? Isn't that' great. That's great. I I uh, have a heart for Joseph. I mean, this just me. or Does that guy look like Donny Osmond? <laughs> hey, it just scares me. Take away the accent, he looks like Donny Osmond, but. Um, here's Joseph, and I mean, how would you feel? Your fiancé comes to you and says, you know, basically, I've got some good news and then some bad news, but then some other good news. The good news is that I'm, I'm faithful to you. I'd always be faithful. To you. I'd never think of cheating on you. The bad news is I'm pregnant. But the good news is that that uh, it was done by God, and we're going to raise the Son of God. That would be a lot to take in, you know, in, in a moment. It could ruffle the feathers a little bit and screw things some things up. Uh, but I'll get back to Joseph here in, in, in a little bit um, towards the end of the message. I first want to focus on the question of why. I love that the way this this, this little film ends when he, he asks why, why why would why would God do this and the angels just kind of look at each other with that knowing smile and they just kind of nod their heads kind of saying you have no idea you know how great this is going to be um, but I want to ask that question why now the the obvious answer the customary answer and it's totally true as far so, so far as it goes is that he came to save us he's the savior. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas. The Savior has been born. That's totally true. But if that's all the farther we go, we don't see anything else around that, then it gives the impression that Jesus came just as a rescue operation. Jesus came because he had to come, not because he wanted to or because it gave him joy. Uh, You get the impression that we had made a mess of things and now God has to clean it up. And so Christmas is a cleanup act. It's a rescue operation. In fact, the way it's often talked about gives the impression of, 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 sometimes you get the impression that God is, is sort of up in heaven and he's so angry at human beings, so disgusted with human beings, he's about to send them to hell. But Jesus says, no, don't do that. Uh, I'll go down there and, and, and I'll take the beating instead. And so you get this picture of God just being so enraged that, um, you know, he's, he's, he's got to pour his wrath out on somebody, and so Jesus says, I'll be the lightning rod. Jesus comes in this world as the lightning rod that will deflect God's wrath off of us onto him, so then we get to uh, escape hell. And that's the way a lot of people think about the gospel. The thing is, is that that's... It's kind of a stretch to call that really good news. It's it's relief news. It's relief news, but it's not really good. It, it's It's just... We got lucky and got out of the bad news. It's, it's, it's an escape clause on the bad news. And it's not the most beautiful news you've ever heard, which is what the gospel is supposed to be. The word gospel means, it's you and it means good news. And this kind of falls short of that, this lightning rod sort of idea. Now, it's totally true that Jesus died in our place, absolutely. And it's totally true that, that he became our curse, Paul says. He, he, he bore the consequences of sin. That's absolutely true. But this lightning rod explanation for how he did that well, I don't think that's at all what the Bible means by saying that he bore our sin and uh, uh, suffered the consequences of sin that, that, that we deserved. Um, and this picture of God isn't really that complimentary of God if you think about it. A God who's so drunken with rage, someone's got to bleed, someone's got to pay, someone's going to get hit. Who's it going to be, humanity or my son? And the son says, well, take me instead. It, it makes you grateful for Jesus, but God the Father, uh, you know, it's not, not so complimentary towards God the Father. I heard a preacher one time tell the story, he said it was a true story, of two brothers and a wife who were living, and a mother who were living with this raging, violent alcoholic. And when the father would come home drunk at night, the son would get out of bed and intentionally provoke the father, and the father would proceed to beat him, and then the father would pass out for the night. And then when the authorities rescued the family from that raging, violent man, um, they asked the older brother, why, why did you do that? Every night intentionally provoked him to get beaten. And he said, it's because it hurt more to see my mother or my younger brother get beaten than it took to get beaten. And so he, he stood in their place. Now, that story is, is a beautiful illustration about the older brother. He's a type of Christ. He stands in the place of his sibling and his mother. Uh, he takes the beating. So it's a, it really manifests self-sacrificial love on the part of the brother but it's not such a good story of the father. And yet this preacher was trying to you know, say, this is how the gospel works. This is why Jesus had to die. Which gives the impression of God being a rageaholic. So drunken with rage. Someone's going to go to hell. Someone's going to bleed. Someone's going to get a beating. And so Jesus steps in and says, don't do it to them, do it to me. The lightning rod uh, kind of Christmas story. Um, And and it it makes you grateful to Jesus, but it, it... a God who's drunken with rage, you can't really love. You can only fear. And so what you find throughout church history, there's been this a, a theme that c- c- comes up every now and then. You see it in Martin Luther, the reformer, really clearly, where he admitted that he was in love with Jesus, but he was terrified of God the Father. Um, and, and God the Father looks very different from the loving Jesus. In fact, the loving Jesus comes to protect us from this vengeful father. But that's kind of weird because... Jesus tells us that he came to reveal the Father. He says, if you see me, you see the Father. How can there be any disjunction between the beautiful Jesus and the raging Father? There's something odd going on here. Something's off. This is not the gospel as we read it in the New Testament. Plus, John tells us that perfect love casts out all fear. And God is love, and, and, and so to love God and be loved by God is to be free of fear. To the degree that you know the love of God, you should be free of fear. And so any picture, like this rageaholic picture of God... Any picture that installs fear in us rather than love can't possibly be a true picture. Something's off with that. It's one thing to have reverence for God and awe. And that's I think it, what's often meant by when in scripture when it says fear the fear of the Lord, it's a reverence kind of a thing. But it's not a fear of punishment. John is explicit in this in 1 John 4, 19. He says fear, the kind of fear he's talking about, is a fear of punishment. Like God's going to beat us up. He's always, his hand's are always cocked back. And it's going to come down, and as and so long as Jesus comes in our place and takes the beating force, well then we're okay. But, but it's, a, it's a frightful picture of God, and um, something's off with that. That's not a God that you can fall passionately in love with. So I want to take another look at this. Why did Jesus come? Which is to say, what does it mean to say that he's the Savior? Uh, what's going on in this? And we're going to find uh, that it's all about joy. I want us to see this morning that, that Jesus came not to protect us from a raging father, but to reveal to us a, a an unbelievably beautiful, joy filled Father, uh, a, a a Father God who is Himself full of joy, and the goal of the whole thing is to share that joy with us. That's why Jesus came. And he saves us from everything that could possibly get in the way of that relationship with that beautiful God, and therefore prevent the fullness of joy and love and life that that comes out of that relationship with God. He's a joyful God. Now, I, I, we first got to ask the question: What is joy? What do we talk about when we say joy? A lot of times, what people mean by that is simply uh, extreme happiness. But happiness and joy are very different things. Happiness is is a momentary pleasurable emotion that you get from being in favorable circumstances. Things are going your way, so you're happy. Um, But joy is deeper than circumstances. Joy attaches to it's a state of being, right? And and and, uh, it's not dependent on circumstances. Your, your happiness goes up or down depending on whether your circumstances are favorable or unfavorable. But joy is something that, if it's, if it's real joy, it, it endures through all circumstances. It doesn't increase or decrease based on whether things are going your way or not. Happiness is absent when you're in circumstances that cause you grief or frustrate you or, or make you angry. But joy is something that you can have even when you're in the midst of circumstances that cause you grief or that frustrates you or make you angry. Those are not incompatible. And see, God is, what, what we're going to see here is that God it has joy. In fact, God is joy. God delights in being God. His Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. He is the epitome of perfect love and perfect joy that comes out of perfect love. And uh, he has frustration. You see in the biblical record, he gets frustrated with humans. He gets angry. Um, uh, he, he's, he's disappointed sometimes. He's got a range of emotions. But because joy attaches to a state of being, uh, it doesn't affect his joy. God always is joyful at being God. And what God wants, we're going to see here now, is he wants to share that same joy with us. The point of the whole thing is joy. It's about joy. Not escaping the wrath. It's about the joy. Not just relief. It's really, really good news. Now to see this, let's start by going to um, uh, the, the narrative of, uh, of, of, of Jesus uh, in Luke chapter 2. And... Um, Here's where the angels are announcing the good news to the shepherds. Listen to this here. It says, In that region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch by their flock uh, over their flock at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. They're terrified. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy which will come to all the people. Good news of a great joy. The news is about the joy. Uh, and and uh, uh, to you that it will be born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a babe wrapped in swaddling coal clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and, and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Okay, let's pick this passage apart a little bit. Note, first of all, that the shepherds are terrified. The angel of the Lord shows up. And, uh, they're, they're terrified. And that's what you usually find in the Bible, uh, is when the the Lord shows up or a messenger of the Lord shows up, uh, people are terrified. The angels always have to say, don't worry. Uh, we're not, we're not here to smite you. But see, there's something about our fallen nature. Ever since the rebellion, in this alienated state, we have an instinctive fear of God. It's our nature to fear God and to want to hide. You see what they Adam to Eve right there in the beginning. First thing they do when they rebel is they hide. We're terrified of God. Uh, part of what's going on is that we're afflicted by Satan with, with deceptive pictures of God. Just as has happened in the garden. Satan got Eve to b- believe an untrustworthy, deceptive, vengeful, pathetic picture of God, and, 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 and so she's afraid. And so as we have these false pictures of God, these rageaholic pictures of God, these terrifying pictures of God... We're naturally afraid. We want, to, we want to run. So when God shows up, or an angel of the Lord shows up, we assume we're in trouble. This can't be good news. This has got to be bad news. God's here. It's like when I was they sent me away to uh, Catholic school to solve my behavioral problems as a kid. And um, uh, it did not work, obviously. But uh, whenever I found out that Mother Superior wanted to see me in her office, which happened about once a week, Mother Superior, that was the title she had, and she's the principal of the whole school. And this lady was a militant tank, I'll tell you. It was, it was crazy. But uh, uh, it wasn't good news. I knew that, that Mother Superior, did, it wasn't because she liked me. She missed my face. And that she wanted to see me. I knew that I was in trouble. I knew that she was mad. I know I was going to take a beating. This wasn't good news. This was bad news. Now, I usually didn't know why I was in trouble. It wasn't until I was 46 when I got diagnosed with having ADHD and I started reading the history of people who have this. It was like reading the story of my life. Because they often are in trouble and they don't know why. It's just it's like, ah, oh, see, they had it too. It's wonderful. It's what a relief. But I would tell that to Mother Superior. And she, it would just make her more mad because she thought I was lying. Mr. Boy, why did you do that? I don't know. he got this ugly stick and it was nasty. But see, we tend to, in our fallen condition, uh, see God as a cosmic Mother Superior. And so if God shows up, uh, this can't be good news. We're in trouble. So they're afraid. So the angels have to say, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. We're not here to bring bad news about a wrathful God. We're here to bring good news. And it, the good news is about a great joy. We've got a great joy uh, to tell you. And this great joy is for all the people. And then notice that the angels end when they're singing their song. They, they end by saying that Jesus has come to bring peace on earth among Human beings with whom God is pleased. Jesus came not to protect us from a God with whom He is uh, with a uh, God is furious with us. He came to He came because to reveal a God who's pleased with us, not pleased with everything that's going on, but a God who delights in us and has come to bring us great joy. So this passage reveals that Jesus is a savior. It's called a savior here. But if we can get rid of our ugly pictures of God, our monstrous pictures of God we'll see that he's not saving us from God the Father. We don't need to be saved from God the Father. God the Father is the one who's doing the saving. Uh, He's he's not here to to placate the wrath of God. He's here to reveal uh, a a, a beautiful, loving, joy-filled God. He's here to uh, bring us into a relationship with that God. And he's here to save us from everything that could block that relationship and everything that comes to kill, steal, and destroy the fullness of life and joy that God has in, in store for us. God comes as a bringer of a of news of a great joy. And, and Jesus is here to reveal that joy and to open up access for us to get that joy and to save us from everything that tries to kill, steal, and destroy that joy. And so Jesus later on in life, he says this in John 10, the thief, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy Whatever you see killing going on, stealing, or or thievery going on, or or destruction, that's the thief. On some level, the thief is at work. But Jesus says, I've come that you might have life to the full. I've come. He's he's the life bringer. And and it's it's, it's about the fullness of God's life, the fullness of his joy. He's the bringer of the good news. And so he, he saves us from everything that kills, steals, and destroys the fullness of life and joy that God has for us. That's how he's the Savior. You see how central joy is to everything Jesus is about, even before Jesus is born. So when Mary was, was uh, pregnant with, with Jesus, she went to visit uh, her cousin Elizabeth. And her cousin Elizabeth was also pregnant with, uh, with John the Baptist. She was a little farther along than Jesus was, uh, than Mary was. And so, um, John, John the Baptist is, is the one who was to lay the groundwork for Jesus coming. He was, he was announcing to the world who was coming. He's the one who later on said, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But here we find in a passage where we see John is doing his work even before he's born. When Mary greets Elizabeth, Elizabeth says this, that when your words, when your greeting, when the voice of your greeting came to my ears, the babe in my womb leaped for joy. This is is interesting. John is here already announcing to the world who's come. And it's interesting that, you know, whereas we instinctively fear God, where when the angel or the angel of the Lord shows up or the Lord himself shows up, there's this fear here. But when the true God comes into the world, his name is Emmanuel, God with us, right? When the true God comes into this world, the one who's assigned to announce him is leaping for joy. He responds. This is the first human response we have to Jesus in the Bible. It's a response of joy. And that on the part of, a, of an unborn human being, he's leaping for joy. I don't know what that looked like. It must have been kicking the daylights out of Elizabeth's belly or something. I don't know. But man, John's going crazy in there because this he's wired for this. This is what he's hes created to do is to announce the joy bringer has come into the world. The one who comes to bring us great news of a great joy. And that's what Jesus is all about. And then you see the theme throughout Jesus' ministry. At one point, Jesus is is teaching about abiding in him and how important it is that we remain in him. And if we remain in him, we'll bear much fruit. But then Jesus says... I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Note that word so that. So that the ultimate purpose of this teaching, and I think it applies to all of Jesus' teachings, I think it applies to everything Jesus does, is so that his joy would be in us and our joy would be complete. God wants a people who are complete in joy. And they, in fact, they're enjoying his, enjoying them. The joy of God is in them. And then later on, uh, towards the end of Jesus' ministry, just before he gets arrested, it's the last public prayer he prays. It's in John 17, a magnificent prayer. And at one point he says, I'm I'm coming to you now, he says to the Father, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. The full measure of my joy within them. Chew on that for a second. The full measure of my... Jesus is saying that the joy that he has being the Son of God, and that's, I'm assuming, unsurpassable joy. He is part of the triune God, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The the joy of being God, the joy of this triune fellowship, this ecstasy, this bliss that God has being God, Jesus has come so that the full measure of that, not just a little bit of it, not just a part of it or an aspect of it, the full measure of that joy would be in us. So our joy would be complete. If that full measure is in us. Do we dare to believe in a God who's this beautiful? This is the question. A, a God who he, he, he has joy sharing his joy. The purpose of the whole thing is for us to enjoy the joy that God has being God. We're not God, but he wants us to Feel the, the joy that comes with that as we're loved by God. We, sh- we share the life of God and the joy of God. God wants the full, that full joy to be in us. <laughs> See, that, that, this is so much more beautiful, a trillion times more beautiful than this rather pathetic lightning rod good news. That's relief news. Whew, we, bu- we dodged a bullet news. Okay, fine. Uh, but this, this, folks, this is the really good news. This is the euangelion. This is the great news of great joy. Uh, that, that, that the angels were talking about. This is the best news imaginable, the best news you could ever conceive of. This is the greatest, most fantastic, mind-boggling, goosebump-making, ecstatic, incomprehensible, brilliant, infinitely deep good news you could ever dream of. It's, it's the news that beats all news. This is what God has in store for us. It could not possibly be better than this. You can't outdo the joy that God has been God. And that's the joy he wants to give us. Uh, and that's why Jesus came. He came to bring us this good news, to reveal the beautiful God who's behind this good news, and to save us from everything that could possibly block that good news. That's what the Christmas story is all about, folks. And at the center of the whole thing is joy, the joy of God enjoying us. Amen. Amen. He didn't come just to clean up a mess. He didn't come just because someone had to take a beating. He didn't come just because we were a problem that needed fixing. Of course we are problems that needed fixing, but... See, he didn't come because he had to come. It gave him joy to to, to come. Uh, God, everything God does, he does out of joy. And 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 he, he gave him joy to come to share our to share his joy with us. And even when Jesus dies on the cross, he does it out of joy. We saw this last week. Hebrews 12. He says, fix your eyes. Uh, run, run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. There's gonna be a tough race ahead of you. That's why it takes perseverance. But do it, fixing your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. If you just keep on staring at Jesus, your faith is going to be perfected. He's a pioneer, and he perfects it. Keep your eyes on him. And then it says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning his shame, for the joy set before him. Now, there was not one thing pleasant about the cross experience. It was nightmarishly bad. But Jesus was willing to undergo it for the joy that was set before him. And what it's showing us is that God is motivated by a joy the joy of sharing himself with us. And if we keep our eyes fixed on him, we'll find the same thing is true of our life. We do things for joy, not because we fear something, not not because we're running from a consequence, not because we're trying to hide or because there's shame if we don't do it. It ought to be at the center a joy. It may be very hard, like the cross was hard, but if we're we're understanding who we are and who God is, we'll be motivated by a joy. And so it was joy that that, that led Jesus to, to take on the cross. Now you wonder, how could that possibly be? How could God find joy in that? Think about this. You are, as... The more perfect you are in love, the more mature you are in love, the more loving person you are, the more you have found that the joy of giving, the joy of sacrificing for others, the more loving you are, the more you found that actually giving, there's far more joy in giving than there is in getting. In fact, I don't know if there's a greater joy than pouring yourself out for others and seeing it make a difference. I think this side of eternity, that's the most greatest joy there is. Now, to the degree that you're not mature in love, uh, sacrificing, you just experience this pain. Oh, you know, I, I, I wanted to keep it, but I got to give it up. Uh, but keep on doing that because that's how you're going to grow. But it feels just like pain. But the more, the more you're growing in love, the more you find a depth of joy in giving. Now, God is perfect love. His eternal being is perfect love. And so God, his very being, finds joy in pouring himself out for others. He's a joyful God who has joy pouring himself out for others. <laughs> this is what the triune God does within themselves throughout eternity. There's a, 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 and we can't conceive of it, but there's kind of a giving themselves away uh, uh, within, within the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Their very existence is pouring out for one another. In the church tradition, they call this the perichoresis of the three persons. Don't worry about it. But uh, um, there's a mutual indwelling there. They exist for one another. And then when God creates the world, he does it, uh, it as a way of pouring himself out. And why Jesus comes into this world, he does it to pour himself out. And when Jesus dies on the cross, God's pouring himself out, and it gives him joy to do that. The experience may be nightmares, as it was on the cross, but what motivates it is joy, because God loves to give, because God is perfect love. That's why the cross is the the, the supreme revelation of God. Because the cross is the supreme expression of self-giving love, other-oriented love. And so nothing reveals God more purely than the cross. And what it reveals is a God who delights in pouring himself out, even if it means that he experiences the consequences of sin that we deserve. That's why God created you. That's why Jesus saved you. That's what the cross is all about. And that, folks, is the good news. It's the good news of who God is and who he's created us to be and who he saved us to be. Here's the thing. All of us, to some degree, I I, I suspect, however long you've been a believer, you probably still have the residue of the lies of Satan about who God is. Some people are still a lot. Your brain's infected with demonic pictures of God. Uh, uh, Others, maybe just a little bit. But under the right circumstances, those will get triggered. And see, this is the main way that Satan still keeps us from having a life-giving relationship with the Father and therefore keeps us from experiencing the, the joyful fullness of life that the Father has for us. It's the main way he keeps us in bondage. It's lies. He's a liar. He's always been a liar. He continues to lie. And, and when we have these deceptive pictures of God, then we instinctively fear God and want to hide. And so he's very invested in keeping us um, in bondage to those pictures. Here's the thing that we've got to see. Insofar as you are still, you still have the residue of, of the lies in your brain on any level, um, you will instinctively fear God. It's part of our fallen condition. Until you've been liberated by the good news and God's opened your eyes and hearts to see the true God, until that happens, you instinctively fear God. It's, it's your, it's your fallen nature and you want to hide. And to the degree that you're still in bondage to that fallen nature, the ugly pictures of God feel right to you. Because that's what you expect God to be. So when the preacher tells you that God loathes you, he's disgusted with you, he despises you, he hates you. I heard a preacher say that recently. God hates you. It's personal. He doesn't just hate your sin. No, he hates you. And when we hear stuff like that, if we're still in bondage to the lies, a part of us says, well, that seems right. Yeah, that's, what, that's what a cosmic mother superior would be like that. Or when you hear a story of a theologian or a preacher telling you that God killed the child to punish the parents. Or God wiped out the village with a hurricane. Or God sent the plague or what have you. Part of us, if we're still in bondage to the enemy, that feels right. It feels like, yeah, that's what we'd expect God to be. Or even when you're told, as some have taught throughout church history, that God, from the beginning of time, before the world was ever created, uh, he decreed, he predestined that the majority of people would suffer eternal torment because it gives him pleasure to do that. And when, and, and in our fallen state, there'd be a part of us that says, yeah, that, that sounds about right. Yeah, that's, that's what we'd expect. Because we're used to being terrified of God. We're in bondage. And to the degree that we're still bound to that nature, when you hear the good news, it feels wrong. It, it doesn't fit. It seems too good to be true. Uh, folks, we, we need to, If we're going to enter into this joy, our eyes have got to be open to the true God. It all hangs on this. We need the Spirit of God to open our eyes to see what is true and to burst the bondage, the chains of all those deceptive pictures that we've inherited from religion and and, and from the demonic realm. Some folks hearing this message this weekend, you need to hear this. God isn't mad at you. Jesus came not to placate God's madness. He came... Uh, to, 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 because God has, has pleasure. He says, he, with, with whom God is, God is pleased. Uh, it's not to protect us from the God who's furious. You've got to see that God... Jesus didn't come reluctantly just because you're a problem that needed fixing. God doesn't look at you as a problem that needs fixing. God sees you as his child. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, the, the pleasure God has in you dwarfs in comparison the pleasure that a loving parent has to the newborn baby. Uh, it gives God joy to create you and joy to hold you in existence. If he would not enjoy you, you wouldn't exist anymore. He's the one holding you in existence. You've, you've got to believe that God adores you, that God is ravished by you, that you are his precious child. You're more precious than everything else in the universe, that he would give and has given everything for you. You've got to believe he's not mad at you. His wrath isn't burning towards you. Towards you as a person, he's got nothing but love. And he, what he wants more than anything else, he's, he's desperate in wanting to share his joy, his joy of being God, he wants to share that with you. Um, but see, if we're infected with the lie, then that feels off. The same instinct that makes us think the ugly pictures of God are true makes us think that the beautiful pictures are off. And I, I don't know if I can believe that. It, it, it's too good. Surely God's mad at me. God's got to be mad at me. I'm mad at me. Why wouldn't God be mad at me? Mother's superiors have been mad at me. Why wouldn't God be mad at me? Parents have always been mad at me. Everyone's been mad at me. Why wouldn't God be mad at me? I'm a bad person. I'm a maggot. I'm a worm. I'm snail's breath. I'm, I'm scum. I had the abortion. I got the divorce. I committed adultery. I fell into porn addiction. I fell back again to my meth addiction. I cheated on my taxes. I murdered my grandmother. I, I, whatever it is. Surely God must be mad at me. I'm here to tell you, no, it's not you that God is mad at. God is mad at everything that kills, steals, and destroys the you that God knows is, is the real you, that God created you to be. Uh, but it, it, the, it, towards you, he's got nothing but love. The reason he is... He rages against sin that kills and steals and destroys the fullness of life he has for us. He rages against that precisely because he's so passionately in love with you. The heat of God's wrath towards sin is the mere reflection of the heat of God's passionate love towards you. But you got to know that towards you as the person. He's got passionate love, only passionate love, and a concern to free you from... It's the anger of a parent when you found out that your teenager was out last night driving with a bunch of friends completely drunk. Yeah, there's going to be rage there, but the rage is because you are so precious, and I love you so much, and your friends, you and your friends, have such worth, and you were willing to jeopardize the whole thing by going out and getting drunk, doing something so stupid where you could have got killed. So there'll be this rage there, but it's born out of a passionate love for your child. So also with God, everything hangs on this. You've got to know that towards you, I don't care what you've done, I don't care who you've killed, I don't care what, what, what your what your issue is, what addiction you have, I don't care what. Look, at if you'll just let. The God, the beautiful God, the loving God, the perfect God into your life and believe and just trust that He's as beautiful as He reveals Himself to be. And if you'll just let that get you on the inside, well, all your sins will be wiped clean as though they never happened. Praise God. As far as the East is from the West, He'll cast those things from you. Praise God. And you'll be made new and be made whole. Yes. Amen. And, and, and that is, see that, that is what will transform you. It's the only thing that can transform you. I sometimes say it like this, and I, I, I am sorry if I use indecorous language, but it's the mildest language I can I can find uh, to express what I need to express. But I say it like this. Uh, un, un, until you can really believe, really believe that God loves you in the midst of your worst crap, you are never going to get out of that crap. Until you can let God love you, if, so long as you think that you got to get out of the crap, and then God will love you, you will never get out of your crap. Fear won't get you out of it. Fear of hell won't get you out of it. Shame won't get you out of it. it, it, it may, all that religion will do, and shame and judgment, all that will do is you'll exchange your crap. You may exchange the crap of your addiction for the crap of religion, but it's just as crappy. Looks a little better, still as crappy. <laughs> it, crap, crap trading. That's all you're doing. Crap trading. That's what religion is. Trading crap. No, see, fear, fear, fear will get you to hide your sin. So you look a little better, but fear can't free you from your sin. In fact, it just makes you sicker because now you're hiding the stuff that you need to be freed from. The only thing that can free you is the love of God. Really believing the love of God is as beautiful as as, as he's revealed to be in Scripture. Uh, more beautiful than you can imagine. And when you get a glimpse of that, when you get a glimpse of that, I've, I I was two years in my Christian walk before I got a glimpse of this, but it changed everything. When you see who God really is and he loves you up front, not a condition that you get out of the crap. He loves you in the midst of it. Um, and when you see who, what worth you have before him, uh, then that is what empowers you to begin to walk out of that. You see that you're better than this crap. And you're motivated to get free of it, and you fall in love with a God, and so you want to live for him, and now you'll begin to find, maybe for the first time in your life, that you're motivated not by fear, but by joy. It's the joy of being free, the joy of who God is, the joy of who you are, that motivates you to say, I'm better than this stuff. I'm going to get out of this stuff. I'm going to bury that dead horse in the ground once and for all. I'm going to get out of my life because I know who I am. I know who God is. Now there's a joy that's a part of the state of your being. It's the state of your being. And and this is what the kingdom is all about. Now you're moving in the kind of joy that God himself has throughout eternity. Folks, it all hangs on this. You can see why Satan is so invested in keeping us believing in lies. Because the minute you get a glimpse of the true God, it changes everything. It's the ultimate game changer. You're liberated by joy. Everything God does, he does out of joy. Not begrudgingly, oh, these stupid humans messed up again. God, oh, now Jesus got to go down there and die. No, we're not just a problem that God has to put up with, folks. And, and Jesus wasn't just a lightning rod to deflect the wrath of God. God is a dancing God. He's a joyous God. And freedom happens when we can believe that and see that. And begin can experience that. No ifs, ands, or buts. Um, I don't care what flavor of the crap it is that you're you're drowning in right now. It just does not matter. Trust this message. This is the good news. Now, i to say one more thing about it, and it brings us back to Joseph. And it teaches us something very, very important about how to access this joy. Let's get in the mind of Joseph again. Remember, Joseph doesn't know all the stuff that we know. He, he's, he, he, he's getting this before... Uh, you know, the rest of the story gets played out. So he hears Mary tell him uh, that she's pregnant. And you'd understand why he wouldn't believe that. That would be a hard thing to believe. Especially because there's been, never been any example of this before. We've had one example, so it gives a, a little bit of a possibility, I suppose. I, I can imagine if, you know, if, if, uh, if, if Shelley told me that she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit, we've been married for 36 years, uh, and I know her character, I, I, I would believe that. Um... Well, we'd have some talking to do, but I think I would come around. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> I I but I can imagine myself becoming convinced of that. I can't I can't imagine her uh doing that. So but see, Mary and Joseph really didn't know each other that much. I mean we don't know what they're but if they're typical Jewish kids, they probably, you know, had an arranged marriage. They they weren't like really familiar. He doesn't know Mary Gal very well. And so it's understandable that he would not believe her. His 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 disbelief isn't born out of some kind of arrogant sin. It's just He's being reasonable. In fact, he acts very nobly here. The, the, the narrative tells us that he was going to divorce Mary quietly, uh, in, in, as private as possible. And see, he could have called her out. He could have announced this. And had he done that, it's likely that Mary would have been executed as soon as the baby was born. When you're dealing with first-century Palestinian culture, it's the first-century Jewish culture, you've got to think of a culture that's quite a bit like Pakistan and Afghanistan today. Uh, they see premarital sex and extramarital sex as deserving of death. That's what the law required. And he could have done that. It's merciful that Joseph didn't do that. Uh, but then, he's in a state of unbelief, and I, for the first time watching this this, this uh, little video, it never occurred to me how profoundly painful it must have been for Mary to not be believed by Joseph. Oh, That's a different sermon, but it just struck me how utterly, utterly alone she was. No one to turn to who would believe this. But if, thankfully, the Lord revealed it to Joseph in a dream. And um, Joseph is compelled by this dream to believe Mary. He's telling the truth. Now, that must have been one heck of a dream, folks. Uh, I, I've had some interesting dreams, but nothing would ever convince me of something of this magnitude. It must have been one powerful, powerful dream. But I don't care how powerful the dream was, you, he surely could doubt it. Especially years later, he could doubt that. I mean, it's in the nature of Jesus. You, you could doubt it. Was that really of God? And I want to ask this question. How could Joseph, in this state of being, that he, this decision he has to make, how could he find joy? Because the, 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 the angel said this was a news of great joy for all people. And Joseph is a people, so it's for Joseph as well. How could he find joy in the midst of all this? This decision that he's got to make is huge. A lot hangs in the balance. If he's going to believe the dream, and therefore believe Mary, his life isn't going to be easy from here on. Among other things, in this culture, which is a lot like Afghanistan and Pakistan today, he now is going to bear the guilt, the guilty appearance, of being the guy that got Mary pregnant before they were officially married. They were legally married, uh, but they weren't officially married. In, in ancient Judaism, they had a two, one or two year interval there. And and uh, and so he, had, he would have to get a legal divorce to end this thing. But... Uh, You don't live that down in first century culture. He really is a Christ figure in that he's sharing the appearance of guilt with Mary. And and now the rest of his life, people are going to know that this is the couple that had the baby out of wedlock. And that is scandalous in first century culture. That rumor spreads. We find later on in Jesus' ministry in John chapter 8, he's debating the Pharisees. The Pharisees say at one point, at least we know who our father is. And are doing a double dig there. They say we know who God our father is, but you don't even know who your earthly father is. The rumor's out there. In fact, we've got records of, of, in the second century, there's a rumor going around that, that Mary was impregnated by a Roman soldier, whether it was rape or consensual, but that Jesus was born, he's half Roman. That rumor's spreading. It's kind of the, the telephone line. It gets worse and worse and worse as it goes out there. So this is huge, and Joseph is going to have to bear this the rest of his life. And that's not going to be easy. Then there's the whole pressure of raising the Son of God, like the angel said. No pressure, but there's a lot of pressure. You've got to raise the Son of God. And then there's the whole ordeal going into Bethlehem with a with a, with a a woman who's going to be seven, eight months, nine months pregnant. Having the baby in the, in the barn, in animal-filled, manure-filled barn. Put him in a manger. That's going to be pretty stressful for these kids. And then they've got to run for their life to get away from Herod, and so on and so on. Deciding to believe this is not going to make your life pre- pleasant. So, the question. How could Joseph find joy in the midst of this? And the answer is this. He would find joy only to the degree that he was resolved in that dream being true. If that dream is true, then he's part of a he's a central player in the plan of God in, in, in world history, and he could find joy in this. Uh, he gets to play this role. It would be an opportunity. If he's resolved, if he truly trusts this dream to be true. But to the degree that he would waver, to the degree that he would have doubts, to the degree that the, the, the power of the dream would diminish and he'd have only a vague hope, to that degree he's going to experience nothing but misery. And wonder how, how he, 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 his life would have been so much easier if he would have just, you know, gone his own way. It all hangs on how much do you trust the gospel. What you, this is the principle of faith that is at the core of our finding joy. Ask the question like this, how could Jesus find joy as he's enduring the cross? He could only find joy if he was as he's, Undergoing this torturous experience, if he envisioned, concretely envisioned in his imagination, saw and trusted the, the results of this, that, that the cross would bring, if he saw the multitudes and multitudes of people who are going to be blessed by this and entering into the joy of God because of this, well then he could be, have to feel joy as he's going through this. But if he had only a, like a vague theoretical belief, a hope, gee, I hope this, you know, is doing some good, well then he's only going to experience the suffering. There won't be any joy there. It, it's the principle of faith. Uh, all of our emotion, what we experience is a result of the stuff we're playing in our mind, and that's what faith is all about. I, I, I share this verse a lot because it's so important and so rarely taught on. But it's Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, where the author says, that faith is the substantiating of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. The substantiating. It is when we, in our minds, substantiate, make as a substance, make as a solid thing, that which we hope for, what we believe to be true what we anticipate, then that produces a conviction. The Greek word is elenkos A conviction of the things that we don't yet see. A conviction that it will be so. A conviction that motivates us to move in a certain direction. As you envision it, it produces a conviction that, that, that it is true and you move towards that. So all faith is, 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 in essence, doing this. When you pray for a person to be healed and if you're exercising faith, you envision them being healed, getting out of the wheelchair or getting free of the cancer. And that seeing that in your mind, believing that that is God's will, motivates you to push in that direction. Or or, or envisioning the, the kingdom. You substantiate it. You see it as a substantial reality. Not just a vague hope. Not a mere theoretical belief. But you envision it. And as you envision it, as I said last week, uh, you, you experience the peace in the present of what will be true later on. It produces a conviction in you that it is so. A conviction that it's real. It's no longer just a, a little theoretical belief. it's It's a reality. And that makes all the difference in the world, especially when you're facing death. A friend of mine this uh, a couple of weeks ago found out that his mother, um, it turns out she's filled with cancer. And the doctors say they can't do anything for her. She's got maybe two or three months left to live. Life is so precarious. Now, the mother is in a state of peace and even has some joy at this. And my friend also is in a state of peace and has some joy. But the rest of the family is melting down. Now, what's the difference? I don't know a lot of the family dynamics here, but I do know this. That if a person has spent uh, time in their life cultivating uh, an awareness and a vision of the coming kingdom, it becomes real to you. You taste it. It's not a mere theoretical belief. You experience it. You meditate on it, as I encouraged us to do last week. Uh, And and so it becomes more and more real to you. uh, The conviction that it is so is born in your being so that when death is knocking at the door, well, you experience it in the whole context of the reality of the coming kingdom, and you realize that this is a little vacation trip you're taking. It's not a permanent goodbye. But see, the, the rest of the family, so far as I know, also believes in the coming kingdom. But see, if you aren't envisioning it, if it's only a theoretical belief, uh, that you only think about when someone asks you the question, do you believe in the afterlife? Well, then you, you believe it, but you're not going to experience it. What they experience is real is that mom is going, and it's going to feel like forever. Because what they experience is being real stops at the, at the point of death. They haven't cultivated the vision that goes beyond death. It's so important that we're faithing in our life. Faith is a verb, and that we're practicing this kind of faith in our life. Uh, well, it's the same as truth this good news, folks. You can have a theoretical belief that God is loving, God is good, God is gracious, God loves you. That's wonderful, that's wonderful. But that's not going to give you access to the joy, unless you're seeing it. It's not what you just theoretically believe. It, it, it's what you have faith in, what you trust, what you resolve, what is a conviction in your gut. And the joy will come to us only when we are are going beyond a theoretical belief and actually experiencing it, envisioning it in our imagination. And and, and tasting its reality. Paul in Second Corinthians three puts it like this. He says that that we when we turn to the Lord, our, our minds become unveiled. A veil, that demonic blinder of Satan is removed. And we're able now, he says, to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's Second Corinthians four six. We are we have a capacity to see in our mind now. We're empowered by the Spirit to see the glory of God. The, the radiance of God's attributes. And as we see that, Paul says, we're transformed into it. This is, folks, how we get out of our crap. It's it's not what you try to do on your own effort. It's not what you try to achieve, what you try to accomplish. It's what do you see? What do you have faith for? What do you envision? What are, what, what reality are you cultivating? What convictions are you producing in the core of your being? And as I see the beautiful God being beautiful towards me, my life becomes beautified. As I substantiate in my mind the beauty of God, it becomes a reality to me. As I substantiate the joy of God and the joy that God has uh, uh, in giving his joy to me, I become more joyful. As I see his peace towards me, I become more peaceful. As I see his delight over me, he sings and dances over me, it says in Zephaniah. Uh, It creates joy in me and I want to dance and I want to sing. All the attributes of God, as I see him loving me, I become more loving. What is his by nature becomes mine by grace if I spend time envisioning it tasting it, having faith in it. That's why the Bible says we're saved by faith. We're not saved by belief. The devils believe it doesn't do a bit of good. We're saved by faith and faith is the substantiating of things hoped for, which produces the conviction that it is so. And that's what moves us out of the crap. When you begin to really believe that God's that beautiful and you're this beautiful, your crappy environment is not worthy of you, so you say it's time to shake this stuff off and you move out of it. And you do it with joy, not fear, joy. Uh, Yes. When they say "Joy to the world, the Lord has come," they meant it. Joy to the world! Praise God! This is the joy we're talking about. I encourage you to spend time faithing, spend time substantiating the good news, uh, seeing the beautiful God, taking walks with Him, going to mountaintops, singing songs. However you do it in your mind, the Holy Spirit will lead you. But cultivate that reality, and that produces a conviction that changes everything. You'll find, that with ever increasing degrees, your life becomes joyful, even in trying, grieving, frustrating, angry circumstances. You can have at the center of your being that joy unspeakable and full of glory that does not change, does not waver, does not go up and down, is not conditional. It's just there because of who God is and because of who you are. Stand up. Let's close in prayer. I want to ask uh, the prayer teams to come forward here. And if you have any need whatsoever, I encourage you to come up here and, and um, I'll pray with these folks. Share that with them. That's what they're here for. And, and uh, uh, trust in the power of prayer to make a difference. But all father, fathers, we leave this place. I just bless these people and bless the parishioners who are listening. And uh, Lord, I just pray that we'd be a people who enjoy, spend time enjoying you, enjoying us. Enjoy you, enjoying us. That's the center of everything right there. You, you in, We enjoy you, enjoying us. You enjoy us, so we're going to enjoy you, enjoying us. God, help us to substantiate that, to see it, to taste it, to spend time savoring it, to get the conviction that it is real, and trust that your spirit will be transforming us in that direction, beautifying our life. Uh, enjoying our life, pouring joy into our life as we become a people of joy, serving a joyful God throughout here and now and throughout eternity in Jesus' name. And all of God's enjoyers said, "Amen." Amen. God bless you. Go out and bring joy to the world.